0: My uh, British friend Matthew has a list of attributes that mark out the tourists from America. You probably know some of these. Can you guess one of the characteristics? That they're loud. (laughs) Yes, volume. Um, And you know I say guilty as charged, okay? (laughs) Second thing he mentioned was smiling, smiling. (laughs) As if that's somehow bad. Matthew also mentioned making eye contact. Like a basic form of human communication. Okay? And then he says, The very white and perfect teeth. (laughs) The perfect hair. The suntans. The amazement at any building older than about 20 years. (laughs) He concludes... With this, you're all just taller, more glamorous, and sweatier than any nation on earth. So, typical British backhanded compliment. Um, So Americans are easy to spot, and you can just tell. What about followers of Jesus? Can you spot a follower of Jesus? Can you just tell? Um, The book of James says, absolutely, yes. You can just tell who the followers of Jesus are. If someone's worshiping Jesus, following Jesus, you can just tell, a mile away. And he, this early church pastor, lists off attributes that should be just apparent, that should just flow out of us, like endurance. Man, those Christians, they have this amazing ability to endure trials like no one else, with all kinds of patience. They can suffer with more staying power, um, uh, than anyone I've seen. Or, or the way they the way they speak, man, you can just tell who the Christian is by the way that they speak. They're really kind of careful. The words that come out of their mouth are loving and healing, and, and they can even bless their enemies. Or uh, honor. Wow, these Christians are people of honor. They honor the poor, especially. They don't seem to be concerned with status. They really actually have a, have a way of of seeing everyone is made in the image of God. Or wisdom, man, these Christians, they're wise. They seem to have access to a source of insight from another world. Or generosity, wow, Christians, they don't uh, uh, get seduced by the power of money. They're really generous uh, and just free and sharing their resources. If someone really worships and serves Jesus, James says, you can just tell, you can just tell. And that's why we've called this series mark of faith. As we've studied the book of James, we've called it the mark of faith. The final mark of faith that we'll look at this morning is something called spiritual authority. Spiritual authority. That might be a new phrase for you. might sound a bit strange. So I want to talk a little bit about what spiritual authority is, and then we'll look at James 5. Um, Spiritual authority is to be trusted with influence in heaven and on earth. Spiritual authority is to be trusted with influence in heaven and on earth. People with the mark of faith, of spiritual authority, um, function like something of an ambassador. They are accountable to God, they hold conversations with God, they know the mind and heart of God, but they're also trusted with people. They're trusted by Christians, they're trusted by post-Christians, they're trusted by skeptics, they're trusted by people who are hurting. And. They function like something of an ambassador moving in between the parties. Maybe some of you at work uh, know of, of someone in your workplace who they can just sort of walk into the CEO's office and have conversations with the CEO or the vice president. But they're also trusted by their coworkers and they can move in between parties. And so if there's a dispute, if there's a lack of understanding, this person's really crucial to step in. Or maybe there's a, a classmate that you have. They're trusted with the teacher. They're also trusted with uh, all of the other students. This is a really influential person. This is a person with a lot of authority. Uh, people with spiritual authority are the same. They're, they're able to hold conversations with the living God, and, and they're, they're, they're right with him. They know his heart and mind. The hand of God is on them like it was on Elijah, but also they have a a certain cachet and trust with people uh, on the earth, uh, people inside and outside the church. The authority that they possess does not belong to them. They don't own this authority, Um, but they understand themselves to be a channel of God's authority, Um, and they use that authority to do what God would do with it on earth as it is in heaven. They would use it to heal. They would use it to, to bring people back to the truth. They would use it to build up. They would use it not for their own selfish gain, but, but for love. Um, and because of this, people with spiritual authority have tremendous impact, not only on earth, but also in heaven. And their influence will, will last on earth even after they die. Um, so here are a few disclaimers before we get into it. Uh, a few disclaimers. Number one, spiritual authority is only possible in and through Christ. Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus earned his spiritual authority. Hebrews talks about it as well. How did he do it? Through his death and resurrection. He submitted himself utterly to the Father's will. He went down all the way from heaven to earth. Then he went to the cross. Then he went to the grave. He was raised to life by the Father's good pleasure. And it is because he humbled himself in his death and resurrection that he is now reigning in his ascension as the high priest, it is from him that we derive our spiritual authority. Um, So it's only possible in and through Christ. It's only healthy if we operate in spiritual authority as a church. And um, even though we're going to play different roles and have different gifts, we're going to cooperate together and play this out together. We have to discern God's will together as a church. And I would say even broader than our local church, our diocese, has to hold its spiritual authority as a group as a cluster as we pray together fast together um, gather and worship together so it's in and through christ uh and only healthy if we use it together as a church and then finally i'd say final disclaimer is that this is for the good of the city and the good of the world this is not just for the benefit of the church although it does benefit the church but i one of my prayers for us And my prayer for you is that we would become the kind of people that God can trust, that we'd become like Elijah, that we'd become the kind of people that the hand of God could be on us as a church so that we could bless the world and to reach people who are far from God and to be an agent of healing in our city and in our workplaces and neighborhoods. So so spiritual authority, it's someone who is in a church who is influential in heaven and on earth. Let's talk about, number one, the qualifications of someone with spiritual authority, and then we'll talk about the jobs associated with this quality. Um, So there is no spiritual authority without humility, and James is going to take us through a picture of what it looks like to have that humility. So I invite you to turn to James 5. We're going to look at verses 13 through 16. Does anyone have authority over pulpits? who knows how to get stop this from sliding wonderful great thank you there are some music stands that are just very slidy thank you very much sir all right only people with humility can be trusted with authority. Only people who are done pretending. Are you done pretending? Only people who are done posturing, who are done uh, putting on a facade in order to maintain a certain image. Um, James asks two questions in verse 13 uh, that we should pay attention to. He says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray or let her pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him or her sing praise. Now think about this. People with humility are willing to express both their struggles and their joys. They bring their struggles and their joys before God and the church. You think about the people who are, the people who are most willing to express their, their sorrow or their joy? Children. They're the ones who are going to tell you what they're really thinking, how they're really doing. And so when we've recovered that childlike heart, we're gonna be willing to do the same thing. And not just in the privacy of our prayer closet, but in the community of faith, in the church. We'll have childlike hearts and we'll, we'll bring our suffering and laments and our cheerfulness and without pretense. Um, some time ago, I was in a small group with an older man that I admired. He's very accomplished in his career. He had a doctorate, he had written books, he had started his own not-for-profit, and he was just a man of gravitas and maturity, and I looked up to him a lot. Perhaps the biggest impact he had on me through this small group was how he brought both his suffering and his cheerfulness into our fellowship. I remember him sharing about the struggles that he had with his family, the struggles that he had in his own career and work. He talked about when his feelings got hurt, and he talks about hopes that he had, but he also shared his joy, and that was potentially that maybe the most vulnerable moment that I've ever experienced from him was when he sang for our group a song he wrote based on Psalm 8. It was just the words were just Psalm 8. The tune was the tune that he wrote, and he was not a musical person. He didn't claim to be a musical person. And so the tune was, was not any tune that anyone would record, um, but he actually sang Psalm 8 for our group, and he used hand motions as well. I am not humble enough to do that for you. I joke about singing, but, um, but I actually, I haven't gotten to his level yet. But I remember being so touched of like, this man I look up to so much is bringing his incredible joy over the, who God is and, and God's delight over him. And it was a really humble moment. It was a really humble thing for this man to do. And I I found that actually I trusted him more. He had more authority to to be a, a guiding light for me because of his willingness to be vulnerable with his suffering and his joy. You know, people with humility are willing to receive ministry from the people of God. They're willing to come under the blessing and care of the church. Uh, verse 14 and 15 uh, describes this. James says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him or her call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, over her, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. The Lord will raise her up. And if he or she has committed sins, they will be forgiven. So James says, Are you sick? Why not ask for the ministry of the church? Ask the elders of the church, people who have been commissioned to carry out God's healing, come under the oil of anointing and the prayers of the church leaders. And maybe there's even sin to confess and confess that sin and, and receive the, the soul healing associated with that. You know, um, people with spiritual authority, uh, people with humility find those in the church that have the the spiritual authority to pray for them. They seek them out, they ask for what they need, and they ask for an anointing with oil, they ask for prayers for healing, they trust the ministry of Jesus, they trust Jesus' death and resurrection on their behalf, and they're unafraid to ask for help from the local church. Imagine a student in dental school who was themselves unwilling to go to the dentist Okay, imagine an aspiring chef who never enjoyed anyone else's food but their own. Okay, imagine a future teacher unwilling themselves to be taught. How could we operate in spiritual authority unless we could experience it ourselves, grow from it ourselves? In the legendary words of uh, St. Teresa of Avila, the person who has himself or herself as a spiritual director has a fool for a director. So we need to come under and experience the benefits of spiritual authority before we can be trusted to exercise it. You know, many of us carry around the soul sickness associated with sin that just we've never confessed, that's never received the benefit of the healing light of the church of Jesus and the gospel. And it's tearing us up inside. Um, And, you know, there's a saying in PR and there's a saying in politics, the the cover-up is worse than the crime, and that's often the case with our souls. Ron Rolheiser reflects on this reality in his book Sacred Fire when he talks about a more radical sobriety. He says, when people do something wrong and then cover it up and lie, it is not so much the particular thing that we did wrong that harms us, it's the lying about it afterwards that does the real damage. We are all weak. We all fall. We all commit sin. God understands this. What causes the real harm is the lying, covering up, sneaking around, not being transparent, living a double life. Why? Because the human spirit is not made to live in dishonesty and duplicity. The soul cannot tolerate moral duplicity for long without hardening and warping. Hidden sin kind of warps us And hardens us. It's we're not made to live in a lie and to cover up. This the path to spiritual authority. Therefore, is not to cover up our sin and weaknesses. Sometimes we think that it is, that people will just respect us more if we appear more perfect than we actually are on the inside. But what happens is, in the process of covering up, we're 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 damaging the soul and and uh, we're becoming more and more unhealthy, more and more unfit to bear authority in the first place. The path to spiritual authority is not to cover up sin. It's to confess our sins and weaknesses. And this is our path of holiness. Jesus took up his cross. One of the ways we take up our cross is just letting our perfect reputations be put to death and be crucified. Our soul and body cry out for healing and restoration that the light of Christ would shine on us again. And then what what do we receive in the process? We receive a lightness of soul, of one who's been forgiven, one who's able to forgive. We become like children again, just kind of honest, just kind of free, walking around with a really light backpack. Only then can we become people worthy of influence in heaven and on earth. So verse 16, uh, James says, Therefore, Based on all of this, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Uh, humility is required to either to hear or to make confessions. Um, humility is the willingness to pray for others as well as to receive prayer ourselves. And um, you know, sometimes we picture ourselves as like, "I'm the only sinner in the room. I'm the poor." And needy and lowly sinner. And I need a deeply devout person who uh, is much further along than I am to confess to. And sometimes we do need someone of greater maturity, but no one's on a higher plane than anyone else in the church. Um, James speaks of confession in a reciprocal way. He says, Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. That, that is to say, that sinners are confessing their sin to fellow sinners why? Well, because of the grace of of God in Christ. Richard Foster reflects on this mystery in his book, Celebration of Discipline. He says confession is a difficult discipline for us because we all too often view the believing community as a fellowship of saints before we see it as a fellowship of sinners. We feel that everyone else has advanced so far into holiness that we are isolated and alone in our sin. Have you ever felt that way? I'm the only one. Um, And we cannot bear to reveal our failures and shortcomings to others. We imagine that we are the only ones who have not stepped onto the high road of heaven. Therefore, we hide ourselves from one another and live in veiled lies and hypocrisy. He continues, But if we know that the people of God are first a fellowship of sinners, we are freed to hear the unconditional call of God's love and to confess our needs openly before our brothers and sisters. We know that we are not alone in our sin. The fear and pride that clings to us like barnacles clings to others also. We are sinners together. In acts of mutual confession, we release the power that heals. Our humanity is no longer denied, but transformed. So there's this deep connection between healing and the willingness to come into a community of faith where confession of sin is the way we do things around here. And we enter into that, we come under that, and we receive all of the blessing, all of the healing that God wants to flow through his church. And spiritual authority naturally follows that act of humility. I've shared this story with some of you. It's worth sharing again, and I have permission with the person to share it. When I was still living on the East Coast over seven years ago, serving at a different church, I ran into my former pastor. Um, And... um, we ended up having a long conversation. We caught up on our families and our lives. How you doing? Good to see you. At one point in the conversation, this person began to weep, and they said, Aaron, I believe I sinned against you when I was your pastor. Would you forgive me? And uh, it was just a great moment of humility. And that person seeking my forgiveness is now our bishop, uh, Bishop Stuart Ruck, um, that humility paved the way for us to have a spiritual partnership and to work together and for me to confess my sins to him not long after that and seek his forgiveness for how I sinned against him. Uh, You know, this morning, you can step into this reality here, this reality of healing that comes to those who are humble enough to ask for healing. This is why we have prayer ministers here every Sunday, you can just go and confess your sin, and it's not like—it doesn't have to become some big problem-solving session where you figure out, well, how did it happen, and how do you stop it from happening, but just the power of confession, the power of coming into the light. So I encourage you to, to use a prayer minister, as well as we'll have people here, leaders here at the altar after the service. I'll be here to pray for people after the service is over, and just why not? Why would we not receive this great blessing of God in Christ, the gospel activated through the church? Um, humility is the path of healing, and humility is also, it's the qualification for spiritual authority. Just to be done of all of the barnacles, to be done with all of the false commitments, and to come into the light. So um, that's the qualification, but then if you have spiritual authority, you have two jobs, okay? Okay. So you have two jobs if you have spiritual authority, and the first job is to represent people before God. If people trust you, your job is to come into God's presence and pray for them and intercede for them. Um, We bring the concerns of earth into the throne room of heaven. And uh, this is not just a job for, for pastors, priests, professional clergy. This is a job for the people of God, the priesthood of all believers. Um, something that we do together. James puts it this way, second part of verse 16. He says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Just think about that. A prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It's really potent force in heaven and on earth. Um, that there's a lot of cylinders to this engine, that there's a lot of um, sort of uh, explosive power to this uh, string of dynamite, that when a righteous person comes before the throne of grace, that there is history made, that something is activated that would otherwise not be activated. He goes on to illustrate this. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Just think about that happening, okay? Three years and six months of a drought, and how devastating and powerful that would be. And then verse 18, then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, James says Elijah was a man just like us, all right? Elijah had no unfair, unva- unfair advantages in prayer that we do not have. He was a humble man saved by grace. You read about his life. He had mood swings and... Insecurity, and he got tired and grumpy, and um, he was guilty of self-pity and grandiosity and all kinds of silly things that we're, you know, we're, we're, we're all guilty of at some point in our life. Um, yet by grace, Elijah was also a man who sought the face of God to great effect. Elijah contended with the living God. Elijah operated in God's power. First King says the hand of God was on Elijah. And the hand of God was on Elijah even when he was weak and in great need. James reminds us that Elijah secured two big prayer requests in his life. The first one was was for a drought. He asked God for a drought. Um, Israel at that time was just mixing with some false, honestly, some false worship, false beliefs about God, false theology, false images, mixing with the true covenantal uh, faith they had in the living God, and they were mixing them. Very likely, this is the Baal worship, okay? Very likely this involved two things, sexual exploitation and child sacrifice. And, and, and one follows the other. You have, you have these sacred prostitutes who, who serve Baal, and then you have all the child sacrifice required on the other end of the sacred, pros- sacred prostitution. As well, they were just blaspheming God. And there's also probably like a fertility cult situation where let's pray for the fruit to be born. Let's pray for the rain, really. And the, the irony is that, that the prophets of Baal could, could not call down fire from heaven. They were impotent. They were found to be impotent before the living God as all false gods eventually are. And so Elijah spoke against this but, but Israel wouldn't listen. Ahab wouldn't listen. There was just like the sins of the fathers were being carried out in Jerusalem, the sins of Jeroboam and all of his false thinking. And so Elijah prayed, send a drought, Lord. Send a drought to break the spiritual power of Baal in Israel. Let it be a sign that you are God and that Baal is a false God. And God said, okay. Now, what's interesting is that in 1 Kings, it doesn't say that Elijah prayed for this. It said Elijah spoke that it would happen. And so I think James is surmising here that this is perhaps something that Elijah spoke with God about. And maybe even heard from God about, like, Elijah, I want you to pray for a drought. And so Elijah did pray for a drought. And then Elijah said, there's going to be a drought. When we come into God's presence, we listen as well as talk. He's our father. He's our king. He's our savior. Um, Elijah prayed again, Lord, show your mercy on our on our People, show your mercy. Send rain, and God sent rain. Um, This is spiritual authority at work. Um, This is Elijah carrying out the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. All those who are in Jesus have the authority to pray like this. We bring our burdens to the living God, and we speak to the Lord like like a daughter speaks to her attentive father. We speak to the Lord like a son speaks to his proud father. We. We let the Father speak to us as a friend speaks with a friend. Um, People and churches with spiritual authority have a job, and that job is to pray. Our prayers have great effect in heaven and on earth. Our prayers have great power as they are working. So even think about how might you, how is God asking you to bring the concerns of earth into the throne room of heaven? Are there burdens? Are there places of pain and brokenness in your workplace or in your neighborhood or in your family? Are there people that uh, you are just broken hearted over or groups of people that you are broken heart, hearted over? Bring those before the throne of grace and talk to God about them and listen to God for them. If you are in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Our church is in Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. That means that God wants to help us pray and listen, and that he will speak, and that he will give us ways to pray, and that those prayers will have an impact, seen and unseen, in heaven and on earth. So that's the first job, is that we represent people to God. Second, The second job that we have, and this is concluding point, is that people with spiritual authority and churches with spiritual authority represent God to people. We represent God to people. James places special emphasis on the skeptic and on the post-Christian who has drifted from the church. Verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him or her know um, that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know, people are prone to wander that, Scripture talks about us like sheep, that we kind of instinct, part of our brokenness is to wander from the pack, wander from God, wander from the truth, to drift and to follow conventional wisdom and to get sucked into and swept up into movements and ideas and ideals and group thinking that um, that's going to eventually harm us or others, and that the nature of God is he's like a good shepherd that goes out and seeks the lost sheep. He's like a good father that looks for his lost sons and daughters. He's, he's like the woman looking for the lost coin, like, where is it I've gotta find what I've lost? And that's how God, he's always seeking out who's, who's missing, who's gone, who's, who's drifted. I need to go find them. And people with spiritual authority have that heart and have that ability to find people who would never trust a church, never maybe trust a pastor, um, but they would trust you, wouldn't they? Because you've listened to them. You've worked with them. You, you've, you've, uh, you've thrown parties with them. You've grown up with them, and they trust you. And so God's heart through you is to go find them, to listen to them, put your arm around their shoulder, and, uh, and, and, and when those topics come up, when their pain surfaces, when their questions surface, that you can be in that conversation and that you can, you can handle the awkwardness of it and that you can, you can be there and you can actually contend for their hearts. You can represent God's merciful heart to them. You can represent God's fatherly heart to them. You can represent God's grace to them. That you can represent the tenderness of Jesus to them. When those wander from the truth and it's like the people of God with the spiritual authority of Elijah are bringing them back they're bringing them back. And, and what happens is that uh, they're saved from sin and they're saved from death. Uh, Gordon Conwell did a study of one of the fastest growing sectors of the church around the world. One of the fastest growing nations, or fastest growing church is in the nation of Nepal. Um, and uh, this survey found that 75% of new Christians in Nepal they trusted Christ as a result of healing, either for themselves or someone in their family. It was not as a result of talking to a missionary or a pastor. It was that the healing of the church went went out to communities and found people who were sick, who were uh, who were spiritually oppressed, uh, and who maybe he had some kind of injury, and they were healed and they were delivered. And as a result, that person began to. Who, well, what's the cause of this? Who is this healing force? And they found Jesus as a result. 75% of people who are part of the fastest growing, one of the fastest growing church, sectors of the church in the, around the world. Listen, healing communicates the compassion of Jesus. Healing communicates the kindness of Jesus in a tangible way. One of the calls of this local church, of Emmanuel Anglican Church, is healing. Healing of uh, the rift between head and heart, what we know about God and what we, what we sense from God. And, and, and just so many of us are coming into this church with this with this pain of a separation between head and heart. We have all kinds of ideas about God, but we, we've lost that sense of God's beauty and God's kindness and God's nearness. And something that happens um, in, in, in our worship together and in our community is that The work of the Holy Spirit begins to to heal that rift of head and heart. Um, And as the word is preached, as the liturgy is prayed, as we sing together, the sacred art, um, prayer ministry, all of the gifts of the church, we've seen that the Lord brings healing. And so one question for you is, is there anything that you have received here that you can take beyond the church to those who would never come here? Is there a, a way of praying, a way of worshiping, a way of creating art, a way of uh, listening to God, practicing silence and solitude that you can actually take to those who are hurting who themselves have that rift between head and heart? The stakes are higher than any of us would prefer. And this is one of the great ironies of spiritual authority uh, is that is that it's a heavy burden. It's an easy yoke, but this has a, An impact on people forever, not just in their current life, but for eternity. James says, let let him or her know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The fact is that all of us will give an account for our life and our soul before a living God who is, yes, he is merciful and he is also just. Uh, And there are eternal existences and futures that hang in the balance that you and we have an impact on. Um, so do we love people enough to, to take that in? Do we love people enough to contend for their soul? Do we love people enough to bear spiritual authority in our lives and as a church to share God's heart for them? It's a high calling, and we need the Lord's power and we need the community of faith to bear this together. We might just ask as we, uh, as we conclude here, I want to um, just, l- let's enter before the presence of God himself now. And we hold this entire teaching from the book of James before him. And we now pray, Holy Spirit, would you now come and apply this to our life? Would you actually call us forward? I want to pray now uh, for those who need healing for their body or their soul or relationships. Is there something torn? Uh, Is there a drought? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would now come bring the rain and come bring the healing. I ask that you would lead someone specifically to take a step of asking for the healing uh, and, and asking for what they need. I pray that you would connect them, Lord, with someone this morning uh, who can, who can uh, communicate the great mercy of God. Maybe there's someone here with a sin to confess. There's a hardening and a twisting of the soul. You're ready to be done with it, and you want to ask for grace. I pray now, Lord, that you would lead them into grace. Maybe there is a job to carry out. Maybe you are burdened now to become an intercessor, and maybe the Lord's been tapping you on the shoulder for a while now to be an intercessor, and this morning you're ready to say yes to that, to that role and to that job. Or maybe you are being called to bring healing uh, to the post-Christian, to the skeptic, to your workplace or neighborhood. Come be anointed for that this morning in the name of the Lord for that job and receive his power. Lord, I ask that you would now give us the grace of the Holy Spirit to bear spiritual authority together, As a church, I ask for the mark of faith to be given to each one of us, Lord. And I ask now, Lord, that your continual mercy would cleanse and defend your church. Because we cannot continue in safety without your help. So protect and govern us always by your goodness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.